We are in a study where we're looking at what it means to live in this culture without losing our faith, living faithfully in the culture without giving up on our faith, and what does that mean and how do we navigate that? And so we're going to dive back in to a letter that was written um, 2,000 years ago to a group of believers that were struggling with remarkably many of the same questions that we wrestle with today. And you're going to see that in today's message. If you haven't, if you haven't thought that the Bible's relevant or you thought that it's all past stuff and none of it matters for today, today's going to, one, be difficult. I'll show you that in just a second. But two, it's going to demonstrate, it's going to demonstrate how contemporary the Bible is for us. I've said before that because of the season and the culture that we live in, the first century scriptures, when they were written, have incredible fresh relevance for us in the 21st century. Now by that, I don't mean that they're saying new things. I'm suggesting that we have fresh ears with which to hear the word because the environment that we're currently in so resembles the first century. And that is no more true than in today's passage that we're going to look at, and it's a difficult passage. Let's jump in at 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to pick up with where we left off last week, and we're going to start in verse 11. I'm going to do just a little bit of jumping around today. We're going to cover an entire section, but I'm going to move through it in a different order. But I'll, we'll keep up. Peter says this, and he's writing to these Christians that are trying to figure out in their culture... How do we faithfully live? And so it says this. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He acknowledges what we've said all along. They're sojourners. This is not their home. They are in their place, and yet they feel completely out of place. They don't, they don't partake, they don't believe that they're citizens of the place where they are right now. They have a citizenship that is elsewhere, an ultimate citizenship that's elsewhere. And Peter's reminding them of that. He says, you are exiles. And so when you don't feel comfortable, when you feel at odds or more specifically, when you feel odd, when you feel strange to the world, how, do you how then shall you live? And Peter is going to make a case that it matters how you live in the culture that you find yourself. It matters what believers and followers in Jesus do when it comes to living out your faith in any particular cultural context. How we live it out matters. In fact, look at what he says. It says, verse 15, For this is the will of God. And he's talking to people that are being slandered and oppressed by the culture. This is the will of God, that by doing good, 
you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I don't know that I'd have to work real hard to convince you that in our culture today, Christians, church people, faithful believers, we get a bad rap. Culture is not lined up to sing the praise of the church. It's not hard to see in any of the things that Hollywood produces. So often these days now, it is the believer or the Christian that ends up being the maniac villain, right? There is a culture out there that says if it comes from a Christian faith, it is to be suspect. It is to be questioned. It is to be put down. And that's just on a cultural level. You may experience this even in your workplace. Students, you may experience this in your school. Where because you believe one thing that makes you odd against the world, culture wants to push back. Culture wants to somehow silence you. And what Peter is doing is he's going to run right at that and he's going to say, in that moment, your call, when you feel at odds because you are odd with the culture, you do good. And it's going to be in your actions that you silence the foolish talk. See, that we wrestle with this as people of faith, and the church has wrestled with this for most of history, and the temptation, especially in our country, in our culture, is to fall into one of two areas. Typically, we will run to, when we feel odd and at odds, we're going to run to isolation or accommodation. Isolation is a simple thing. Let's just get in our Christian bubble, let's stay inside the Christian bubble, let's put up the walls, let's keep everybody else out, We'll huddle up on the inside and we'll just, we'll just do our own thing on the inside even though we're at odds with it and we won't even begin to interact with the culture. That's one temptation and that's tried often. Another one goes in the opposite direction. When we feel odd, let's no longer be odd and let's begin to make accommodations into the culture. Let's make accommodations to where we don't look so odd where we can become relevant to the culture, hopefully. Where we can become more fitting in to the culture. We choose to isolate or we choose to accommodate. And the challenge that we have in today's scripture is that Peter doesn't opt for either of those choices. Instead, he's going to say, no, when you're at odds with the culture and they are talking harshly against you, it is now in your actions that you silence them. And he's going to speak to three distinct groups. He's going to speak to a group of citizens serving under an ungodly government. He's going to talk to slaves serving under unbelieving masters. And he's going to talk to wives sharing their serving or work uh, in a marriage with unbelieving spouses. So yeah, we're talking about politics, slavery, and marriage today. So you can see why I ripped all the copper out of 
the air conditioners. <laughs> so what I'm going to ask for today, I love preaching on grace. Today I'm asking for grace. Because Peter is going to lay out something that's incredibly relevant to us, but it's difficult, okay? And I'm asking for some grace up front because I don't want to be misunderstood as we go into some of these very difficult and touchy subjects. So if you would, hang with me, and I'm going to work through what Peter teaches because Peter teaches something that does not come natural to us. This is not a suggestion that when Peter has it, we all go, oh, well, there's the answer because that just looks like it works. Because Peter is going to present a response that's not isolation and it's not accommodation. Because Peter knows that for us to be faithful, he is calling us not out of the culture, but to be in and among the culture. As you do the good deeds among those that are watching is what he instructs. And so he's going to give us a particular posture with which we do that. The problem is it's become a dirty word in our culture. Here's what Peter is going to talk about, and it's the word submission. We have a real funny relationship with submission. Because when we start talking about submission, what we, the only terms that we begin to talk of is power over being subjected under. And Peter is going to begin with the fact that we all, as believers, we see inherent value in all people. We see a value of life and the image of God created in all people. And in that, we need to enter into a certain form of submission. Because we would much rather have our arguments make our case for us, right? When it comes to culture, we would much rather make our arguments, give voice to our arguments, make good, rational appeals. The problem is this group of people that Peter's writing to, they don't have a voice. They don't have a way to claim some power. And so he says, in spite of that, you live godly lives of submission and the culture will take notice. In fact, he's saying you need to shut down the ignorant talk of culture. So we'll wade into the first difficult subject. First Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And look how he ends this. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, 
This is a dicey one for us because most of our belief is honor those in charge as long as they're the ones that you voted for, right? I, I notice that we have a strange thing in churches or sometimes in public prayers. The amount to which we, pay for the, we pray for the president has to do with whether we voted for the president or not, right? If it's the guy we voted for, we're all for praying about him. If it's not the guy we voted for, we don't pray for him. And what Peter is doing goes against the grain that's so in us. He says, you show honor to the emperor. Now, what's even more powerful to remember is the context in which Peter writes these words. When he writes these words, there is a man in power by the name of Nero. Nero was crazy. Nero was oppressive. Nero was only out for Nero. And still, Peter is saying, you will serve as good citizens. Now, notice what he says. He says, very clear, he says, they are sent by, I'm sorry, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. What Paul is getting, I mean, Peter is getting at there is, we don't ever, in trying to be, pay honor, we ne we're never called to participate in sin. Christians always stand against sin. But we should be good citizens serving the common good every chance we get because God has put governments into place. He says there is a moral law that should be at work. This is how he says that even governments, even as, as crazy as Nero, that they're sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good, that there's a moral law that's at work and in our service to be good citizens, we can bless culture. And this has gone on for all of biblical history. Your Christian citizenship is a blessing to other, those around you. The other option is falling into anarchy. Now, it means that when we need to speak out against um, what either party is doing, we speak out. But we do so differently than the world because we speak out from a place of respect and honor. We don't just simply shout louder is what he's calling them to. And he's writing because this group of Christians is under a lot of pressure right now because the word is getting out in the street about them and their practices, their beliefs, Rome sees as a threat to everything that they stand for. And so they are calling for them to be taken out. There's all kinds of pressure on them right now. They are living at odds against the world. And he is inviting them to come in and to live in such a way that they will honor those that are in government over them. And by their honor, they will show and demonstrate the goodness and the blessing of God. 
And this has been true through all of biblical history. Joseph came and rose up in the Pharaoh's house. And by his faithful service, he helped save what was going to become the, the nation of Israel from starvation and famine. Daniel served faithfully in Nebuchadnezzar's court. There's all these examples of serving under a government that would not claim to be Christian, <clears throat> and yet it was the presence of the believer in the moment that God used and was able to work out his plan. It's always difficult to preach this stuff, and I am very much aware that 2024 is on the calendars. And if you haven't heard yet, there's an election coming. And we get really dicey during elections. And i got to be honest, ever since somewhere 2016 was a little crazy, 2020 was off the rails. And there are so many guys that do what I do that work in churches that every four years when it comes around to an election season, they are praying to survive. Because they are so concerned that whatever they say is going to light up some part of their church and they're going to get in trouble. Because our rhetoric becomes a little difficult during this time. Can we be honest? And so I just want to remind you, and this is from... My heart is encouragement, not that we can't be involved in the politics, not that we don't speak up where we need to speak up, but we do it in a different way that reflects who God is, that is noticed by the world. And as it comes to things like social media, where it is just so easy to post something behind a keyboard or with your thumbs on your phone, and throw that out there into the discourse. And it can be so toxic and acoustic. I want you to at least, as we go into this season, to remember the words of Peter that we should silence the foolish talk, not spread the foolish talk. We will live different. Okay. Even more difficult. Verse, 19, um, uh, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten or if... Um, for it you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is a difficult passage. And the first thing I want to help us do is I want to help us hear it in the ears of the very first people that read this, the context in which Peter wrote it. First of all, no slavery is okay, slavery. There is a difference 
in the chattel slavery that marks the history of the United States and that terrible blight in our nation's story and what Peter is describing. In this context, slavery often involved actual wages. It involved the possibility of earning freedom. It, it oftentimes did not or did not separate the family. And it would be more akin to an indentured servant is what we're, what we're seeing. Now, let me be okay. I mean, let me be clear. It is not okay for one human to own another human. In Peter's context, slavery was the norm of the day. Slavery was the way that produce, the way that production, the way that education, the way that the markets worked, it was slavery. It would be akin today to taking our power plants offline. Supply chains would stop, markets would stop, everything would stop. So when Christians are now preaching that you are truly free in Jesus, and the outside world hears that, they become concerned that when their slaves get a hold of this message, they're going to become insubordinate, and they're going to become rebellious, and they're going to just shut down. And that's going to bring the entire world to a halt. Medical aid's not even going to get through. And so they're worried about what is this going to do, and so Peter, once again, wants them to shut down this kind of talk. And so what he encourages them, he says, there is a way for you to live, even if it's unjust, you model something different. You change the game with your behavior. And what you end up doing is you end up glorifying not your earthly master that perhaps is unjust to you, but you glorify your heavenly father, the one that you ultimately serve. Now, I'm just going to say, that's difficult to read and to get my mind around. But Peter's not afraid to place that kind of call on the life of the one that comes to profess the name of Jesus. And he's calling them into that kind of life. Now, I, I am not suggesting that employment and slavery are anywhere on the same plane. So don't hear me suggest that. But the closest that I could get is thinking about what would it be like if every Christian, when it came to their job and who they served, that the word got out that if you hire a Christian, you're hiring the best employee you could possibly find. Because of their work ethic, because of how hard they serve, because of the dignity that they bring, and because of the compassion they bring into the, uh, into the job. Peter's saying, 
we will win with our actions, not our arguments. Well, since we're in deep water, let's keep swimming. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your, ador your adorning be external to the braiding of hair and putting on gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your, your atoning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Once again, in Peter's context, in what Peter is saying, he is writing to a culture where it was guaranteed, the bottom line assumption, that if you were to enter into a marriage, the wife worshipped the same God or gods that the husband did. She would offer the sacrifices required by that God. She would bow down to the idols of that God. She would go to the temples of that God. That was just understood. Now, <clears throat> there's a group of Christian women that will not bow down to an idol. But you're wondering, how do they have husbands? Why, why are they in these marriages? Because if you'll remember... One of the practices that made the church unique is they did not practice in exposure, where if it was an unwanted child, which usually meant a daughter, they would go and leave the child at essentially the city dump to be exposed to the elements and the animals until the child died. That was a common practice. The church then began the practice of going and collecting these children, taking them home to be cared for, and began what became known as the first orphanages, the first children's homes in this way, simply because people were being faithful. <clears throat> well, when daughters are abandoned at a high rate, but sons are not, you get an imbalance in your culture. And so now, a couple decades later, where are all the women that can be of marrying age? They're in the church. And so the men look to the church and they start, hey, here's a group of women that are of marrying. And so they start coming into the church or at least being around the Christian women. And they would enter the marriage, but the wives were now in a very direct way saying, but I will not bow down to your idols. And what Peter is saying is you've got to be very specific and very intentional with how you do that. Because this goes against, once again, the entire grain of the culture. And the fear was that you're about to break apart all of our homes and upset the entire thing. And Peter says, do not let them get away with foolish talk like that. You need to shut it down, once again, not by your arguments, but by your 
actions. And so he's encouraging these wives to live in such a way that they see the good in them. See, we live in our culture now, some of this is so difficult for us to understand, is because the culture that we live in right now has been affected by 21 centuries of Christian thought. This idea of, of compatible, equal marriages coming together where husband and wife are in some mutual submission to one another, working for the betterment of the other, <clears throat> not the power-up position, but the servant and the sacrificial position, that is a Christian idea. Now, at times we want to act like it's an American idea. That's fine, but let's know where it came from. It came from Jesus first. Look at what he even says to the what Peter says to the husbands at the very end. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you by the grace of life, <clears throat> so that your prayers may not be hindered. What's that last line mean? Saying, men? You love your wives the way that Christ loved the church. And you treat them such. <clears throat> so that when you go to pray, you're treating your wife just the way God treats the church and treats you, and there's no mess there. You know when you're in a relationship and there's something between you and somebody else? There <clears throat> there's just some junk there, and you can't talk freely, and you can't talk openly, and you can't talk intimately. Saying, don't be that way. How you treat your wife will matter. How you interact with God. And this is radical stuff. This is unheard of stuff. And so to the wives, he's saying, <clears throat> to those with an unbelieving husband, you will win them over. But once again, not with your arguments. Nobody's won over by nagging. But you can win them over with your good. And so they will see your good even if they can't see your God. By honoring them and being compassionate and serving. <clears throat> Not giving up who you are in Jesus, but realizing that God's at work in this. So here's the struggle. Excuse me. All of this is so strange, but it only makes sense because of the paragraph that comes right in the middle of what he's writing. So let me show you that, and this will close our time out. I'm going to start in verse 21. And if everything that we've said so far doesn't make sense, doesn't seem practical, <clears throat> here's why. It's because it's the Jesus way. It's the way where we don't have to choose accommodation or isolation because it's exactly what Jesus did. This is what Peter drives us to. Verse 21. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree, that we may die to sin 
and live to righteousness, by his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but am now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter's saying, you follow one that unjustly went to the cross for you. He did not deserve it. It was not fair. It wasn't even legal the way that it happened. And yet he endured it. This is the one that we follow. This is the one that we emulate. Because Jesus has done something on our behalf. He's received something that was unfair and unjust. Unfortunately, so often we've bought into the preaching that says, if you follow Jesus, your life gets comfortable. Your life becomes successful. It gets sweet. It gets nice. I would love to preach that. I just can't. It's not in Scripture anywhere. We follow one that says, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Not pick up your convenience daily and follow me. He submitted as our model. And it was in that power of submission, when it seemed like he was giving up all power, that he turns the tables on the cosmos and at the cross redeems us. And so what Peter is calling us to do says, you are people that follow the odd, strange way of the cross. We don't accommodate, we don't isolate, we go the third way, which is the odd, strange way of the cross. And in our oddness, we serve and we receive and we bring a blessing into the culture. It is in our service like that that we now have a voice. So I would say that God cares more about your witness than your comfort. God is not hoping that all of his churches are comfortable. But he is hoping that all of his churches are serving in submission. When we are treated unjustly, we have a choice to make. We can respond in kind, meaning the same way. We can fight back. We can get back. We can punch back. We can push back. We can give them a piece of our mind. We can give them our arguments. We can go to social media. We can post. We can, we can rant and we can rave. And you know what will happen? You will feel better. But it won't make a difference. Okay, confession time. I've told you before that oftentimes I I realize that I'm the first one that gets the sermon before you, you hear it because as I'm prepping it, I believe that God's at work and he's just Sometimes he's beating me up with a lot of stuff that I need to hear. And so by the time I get up here, I'm kind of hoping there's something up here for you, but I know this is meaningful to me, selfishly. That happened to me this week. Because I was very much deep into wrestling with these difficult passages. I was 
trying to figure out the message here and what God would have us understand. And I get a message from Scott Sela that includes the picture telling us about our air conditioners. This is the picture that came up. I got that, and I'm telling you, I was mad. I threw my hands up. How many times do we have to go through building problems? How many times do we have to have worship disrupted? How many times? What's that going to cost? What's that going to be on the way? <clears throat> I was just frustrated. Seal was frustrated. We were all frustrated. Finally, I realized at some point I got to get back. I just can't stew on this. And I got to get back to the scripture. And I started working on the sermon. And I got down here to this part about Jesus. God started to do a work on me. And I realized that getting back would make me feel better. But it wouldn't make anything better. It wouldn't change the world. It wouldn't have an impact. And I came to realize that there has not been a single time in my life when I got back at somebody and we were both better off for it. But there's times that we responded to unjust treatment with a blessing. And that made all the difference in the world. So I would like to put the sermon into practice right away. I'm going to invite Jake, one of our shepherds, to come up. Specifically so that we don't make our instinct like my instinct was. To strike back. But to offer a blessing. So I'm going to ask Jake to pray for those for a blessing on those that damaged our conditioners. Jake? Thank you, Scott. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are truly thankful for the blessings that we have. We're thankful that we have a Savior that willingly died for our sins, though we were unworthy and had no justification to ask for that. And again, we thank you for that love, mercy, and grace that was extended to us. Likewise today, we want to ask a blessing upon those that did damage to our facility. We pray that you will bless them, you will forgive them. We pray that we will show them mercy and grace. And dear Lord, while we look on to society, while this makes no sense, we pray that you will continue to call us to be a people that follow you and not follow the social norms. Dear Lord, we live in a society that today, any slight, any offense, demands retribution, demands canceling, demands repayment. And we just pray that we will not be that kind of people, that we will strive to show mercy, grace, and love to all those, whether they treat us unjustly or wrongly, or whether they have offended us in any way. We pray that you will continue to help us always be mindful that we follow a Savior, that while he was completely blameless, completely sinless, died on the cross for our sins, and that while 
on that cross, he uttered these words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We pray that we will have that kind of love, mercy, and forgiveness for others and strive always to live our, way, our lives in a way that will be to your honor and glory. We pray all these things in your Son's most holy name. Jesus' strategy is not that we would accommodate, that we would somehow become the world. Jesus' strategy is not that we would isolate and remove ourselves from the world. But Jesus wants to send us into the world a different kind of person. And so I would just end this with this line. Jesus calls us out of the world to be sent back into the world to, regress, to rescue others from the brokenness of the world. That's the call on our lives when we get beyond religion.